Welcome to the Northeast Community Church Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to know more about us, visit us on the web at necommunity.church. All right, so like I mentioned earlier, if you weren't here, we have a guest pastor today, so I want to do a quick introduction of Greg. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the bio that we asked Greg to send us, and, I'm, and then I found some additional information on Greg that's not in his bio, so I'm going to, I can tell he's a humble guy because I found out, I cyberstalked him. So I'll, I'll share that here in just a second. Greg's originally from Austin, Texas. He's married uh, to his wife, Tara, and they have a six-year-old daughter named Saya. Is that right? Okay. Um, he's been serving in pastoral ministry for 14 years. Currently, he's a chaplain, university chaplain at Handong Global University in South Korea, um, which includes being a teaching pastor at Handong International Congregation and pro- a professor teaching introductory Bible courses. After serving seven years in Korea, they're presently on sabbatical, staying with family here in Georgetown um, until this month, right? And then heading back? All right. Um, and Greg's also a 13-year veteran serving as a chaplain in the Navy Reserves. Okay, now here's my bio on Greg. All right, so I, I, I found him on LinkedIn, right? So, again, very humble guy because there's some interesting stuff here. Greg, I hope you're okay with this. If you're not, I've got the mic. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so what I'm going to call out is his educational background. Kind of interesting. So he got his undergrad at Texas A&M University in Commerce. Looks like he played a little basketball there. Uh, that's cool. So he juggled basketball and, and doing, a, doing a full-time college education. He thought that wasn't enough. So he went on and got his master's in religion from Trinity Evangel- Evangelical Divinity Church, uh, School. Okay, so master's. Pretty cool. Um, decided that wasn't enough, went to Liberty University, got another master's in religious education. Okay, pretty cool. Decided that wasn't enough, went on and got another master's in teaching from Trinity International University. Three masters, are we counting? Three masters. Decided that wasn't enough, went on and got his PhD in theology from Louisiana Baptist University. Did I mention on the prior masters, he was magna cum laude, and on his PhD, he was summa cum laude. So very similar to our pastor. Because <laughs> they both play basketball. That's what I'm saying. They both very similar. Um, so it's kind of like the, kind of like, Alicia, you'll enjoy this. It's kind of like the Golden State Warriors. When Steph Curry goes on the bench, KD comes in, right? So we got Steph Curry on the bench right now. We got KD coming up, all right? So guys, welcome Greg Brown, all right? I am a little taller than Sean, so kind of like Katie, Steph Curry, just a little bit, right? 6'11", that's funny. Um, Before we begin, if we could take one more second and pray. If you could pray for the person on your left and right, pray that God would speak to them in a special way this morning, that God would give them ears to hear and a heart to receive. And if you could also pray for me, dealing with a little bit of, uh, I guess it's the Austin allergies got me yesterday and today, so you can pray for me as well, and that God would be glorified. So take a second and pray, and then I'll open us. Father, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. If you have your uh, Bibles, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We're going to read through the Beatitudes this morning, and then um, we're going to look at, we may, we'll see how far we get, but I, I hope to do four, but most likely we'll get two or three. And so we'll see how we're, how we're doing. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the NIV. I'll go ahead and read for us. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> my father was, my father's a 20-year Air Force veteran. He retired at Bergstrom Air Force Base before it became the airport. Um, but because he was, in the, was a veteran, we lived overseas for about 11 years of my life. So I almost feel like this, me living in Korea and serving in Korea for the last seven years is an extension of that. Uh, but we lived in England for four years. Uh, we lived in Belgium for four years. Then we lived in Germany for three years. Then we moved to Austin, Texas when I was in eighth grade. But it wasn't until we lived in Belgium where I first gave my life to Christ. We started attending a, a Baptist church, a missionary church. It was a Baptist church in Belgium. I remember being, uh, I must have been about, yeah, must have been about seven years old. And I remember going, hearing at the end of the service, the guy said, if you die today, do you know for sure that you spend eternity in heaven? You know, as a little kid, I didn't have any assurance of salvation. I thought that God would take my righteous works and put them on one side and my bad works on the other side, and I may get in. I didn't know. Kind of like Christmas, you never know if you've really been good enough. So that was kind of my concept, and I went to the front. They, were, they walked me through the Romans Road. I gave my life to Christ, confessed I was a sinner, gave my life to Christ. The next week, we came to church again. And at the end of the service, the pastor said, do you know for sure if you died today that you would go to heaven? And even though I had given my life to Christ a week before, I still felt like, well, hey, I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven. So I rose my hand. I walked up to the front. They walked me through the Romans Road, and I gave my life to Christ again. This must have happened continually for five or six years. Different churches, retreats, um, giving my life to Christ. Um, this is called the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. How do we know that we are saved? If you ever study something called historical theology, historical theology is the development of um, the, a lot, uh, different doctrines in the Bible throughout history, how we came to these conclusions. And one of the things that you'll find is in certain parts of history, certain major doctrines are lost. For instance, if we looked at the Middle Ages, we would see that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was lost. That's why we had to have the Re Reformation, because people had to sell their property and give it to the church to get into heaven. They had to do indulgences. So this major doctrine had been lost, at least by the majority, during this time frame. Many people would say, if you were to look at the development of theology today, that one of the theologies that has been lost 
is assurance of salvation, which is how do I know that I'm saved? If I, we were supposed to take, if we took a poll in here this morning and said, how would you share with someone how to accept Christ? We'd have all these different answers. We'd have the Romans road. We'd have the four spiritual laws. We'd have the John 3, 16, um, single verse passage about how to share people, how to accept Christ. But if we were to ask people in here, how do you help someone know that they're truly saved? Most people wouldn't know. And that's a proof that this doctrine has largely been lost in this time frame. And I think there is a, a resurgence, resurgence of it happening in the church today. Um, this doctrine is important. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, Christ talks about in the last days, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, I cast out demons. I prophesied in your name. I did many mighty works. And Christ simply says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What's scary about that passage is that these people are in the church. They have right doctrine. They know that Christ is God. They're following him. It seems like they're in leadership positions, preaching, teaching, leading, but yet are not born again. In fact, let me add this in here, never been born again. I never knew you. I never knew you. Part of the result of us losing this doctrine in the church today is that we're heaping up many people in the church that say they're Christians, that sing the Christian songs, that wear the WWJD bracelets, but don't really know Christ. How do we know that we're truly saved? I used to use this illustration. I was a youth pastor, English pastor in Chicago for about seven years while I went through seminary at a Korean church. And I used to use this illustration with my youth. I would say, if I showed up to worship, um, to preach on Sunday, and I was 15 minutes late, and I said, yo, yo, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I'm late. On my way driving to church, I got hit by a Mack truck. And so that's why I'm late. And they would look outside the window, and they would see that there were no scratches on my car. And they'd look at me, and there were no bumps and bruises. And they were like, come on, Greg, Pastor Greg. They call me PG. Come on, PG. What really happened? You didn't get hit by a Mack truck because there's no scratches on your car. There's no bumps and bruises. See, they would see that as, obviously, there's something wrong with what I said. Well, that's the reality that is happening in every church today all the time. People say, I know God. There are no changes. I know God, but my language is just like everybody else in my workplace. I know God, but my aspirations for my life have nothing to do with his kingdom. It's all about me. I know God, but there's no change. How do we know that we're saved? Paul realizes this in speaking to the Corinthian church. If any of you guys have ever studied the letter of the Corinthians, you know this is the church that's got some problems, right? With 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, it seems like they're still having sex with prostitutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man's having relations with his father's mother. They're abusing spiritual gifts of tongues. They're, I think chapter 6 as well, there's, there's lawsuits. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says this, examine yourself. Test yourself and see if Christ is really in you, unless you fail the test. Are you really saved? There's sins happening in this church, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, that aren't even happening in the world. In the world, a man having relations with his father's wife, you're worse than unbelievers. Are you, have you examined yourself? And obviously, 2 Corinthians, they're even testing his apostleship. Are you an apostle? Um, 
How do we test our salvation? Now, there are many different things. The book of 1 John, 1 John 5.13, says, I, book of John, he says, I wrote this so that you may believe and have eternal life. In 1 John 5.13, he says, I wrote this to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So there are many different tests in the book of 1 John. We're not looking at 1 John this morning. The Beatitudes is also a section of tests. In Matthew chapter 5.3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word theirs in the Greek is emphatic. It means theirs alone. That without being poor in spirit, you are not part of the kingdom. And for the Hebrews that understood this form of Hebrew, um, I guess, teaching that was being given, it was a form of teaching called an inclusion or inclusio. You get to verse chapter, get to verse 10, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs, theirs alone, is the kingdom of heaven. If there's no persecution, if no one thinks you're strange because of your language, if no one thinks you're strange because you're waiting to have sex before marriage, if no one thinks you're strange because of how you handle alcohol, then you may not be part of the kingdom of heaven, right? Matthew 5.10. And so an inclusion is, it's like two bookends. Verse 3, verse, verse 10. Everything in between describes the characteristics of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. See, Christ realized that when he came to this earth, that there was a, amongst the various kingdoms of this world, Rome and Greece and Egypt, there was a spiritual kingdom. And in the, in the midst of all these different kingdoms, there was a spiritual kingdom. And in this kingdom were people who were different. They had the characteristics of heaven. They had been transformed. He who be in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. There are characteristics as we go through the steps of these eight beatitudes that are like a health checkup. They tell you if you're even alive, spiritually alive, and if you're even part of the kingdom of heaven at all. But also, one, none of us perfectly model any of these characteristics. The only one who perfectly modeled them was Christ. Every one of these was in Christ's life. And if Christ is in you, they will be in you to some extent, to some extent, proving that theirs, that yours alone is part of the kingdom of heaven. And so we'll see how we, we, uh, we're doing on time. But here, here's the first health checkup. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two Greek words for poor. One was used of someone who was poor, called, but the working poor. For instance, in Luke chapter 21, when Christ is talking about the widow who had two mites, he uses a Greek word that means the working poor. She's poor, but she's got something. She's a working poor. In Luke chapter 16, when talking about Lazarus who begged at the gate of the rich man, he uses of the begging poor. That's the word that's used in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are the spiritual poor, so poor that they would have to result to begging to get their resources. But they're not begging for food, and they're not begging for money or success or healing. They're begging for things of the Spirit. See, what's happened in the life of someone who's been truly born again is they have recognized how spiritually bankrupt they are. Hebrews talks about, I think it's Hebrews 12. It says, without holiness, no one will see God. If you've never come to a place in your life where you recognize that you're broken before God, 
that he's holy and righteous. And apart from being holy and righteous, that you can't see him, that you can't know him, that you can't enter into the gates of heaven. If you've never come to a place recognizing your spiritual poverty, if you think that because you go to church or you sing in the choir or because you preach God's word, that that will inherit heaven, then you have never reached spiritual bankruptcy. Every other religion in the world teaches you can earn your salvation. You're not spiritually bankrupt. Only Christ, only through Christ can we be saved. Um, I think we get a great picture of this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 4. Christ takes a little child in the midst of his disciples, and the word child there in the Greek is used of an infant. It says he stood amongst them, but it's used of an infant to a toddler. So most likely because he stood among them, he must have been a toddler like two, two years old or one years old or whatever. And he says, unless you become like this child, this little infant, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, I have a six-year-old, and uh, when she was, she's still young, she still does this actually, but she wakes us up in the morning, and the first thing she says is, Daddy, I'm hungry. I'm like, what do you want to eat? She goes, ice cream. I'm like, no, you can't have ice cream. Because she's an infant, she has to depend on me for a lot of things. She's six years old now. She still has to ask for food. But there's a lot of things that she's growing independence from. So for a person that enters the kingdom of heaven, they have to come to that point where they lean totally on Christ for salvation. But here's the kicker. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, And unless you become, and he who's like this little child, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So infancy, depending on God, is a doorway, but it's also the pathway to spiritual growth. Let me add this in here. It's the pathway to being great in the kingdom of heaven, greatly used. See, our natural bodies are, in some sense, the opposite of our spiritual bodies. My daughter, uh, as a a young girl, depends on me for everything, and she's going to continue to grow up in her life, and she's going to depend on me less and less. We'll drop her off at school one day, and she'll say, oh, Daddy, don't give me any kisses. I don't want no kisses, right? And one day she's going to find someone who's taller than me that could play basketball better than me, hopefully someone that knows the Bible better than me, and she's going to leave me, right? She's going to leave me. She's going to grow in total independence for the rest of her life. The spiritual kingdom is the opposite of that. We started being spiritual beggars like an infant. For the rest of your life, you grow in dependence. Those who have been the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, those who God has used the most to bring transformation in lives, have been the weakest. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about what God says to him, uh, my grace is made complete in your weakness. And God could take many times, in fact, what God does, because we're naturally prideful, we're naturally independent from spiritual birth on, what God will do to help bring spiritual poverty in your life is bring the storms in your life. You thought you were fine with your job, but now you've got problems at the job. And you thought you were fine in your dating relationship or your marriage, and now there's problems in your marriage. And the whole time God is saying, you need me. You're too independent. You don't depend on me. You don't pray. You don't read your word. You don't draw near me. And he brings the storm so that you can start to grow in spiritual poverty so that you can know him and be used by him. How is your spiritual poverty this morning? Remember spiritual health checkup? Where the world doesn't need God at all. They don't need him for salvation. They don't need him throughout the day. They look at Christianity as a crutch. Those who have entered the kingdom of God not only need him for salvation, but they're learning that they need him for everything. How is your spiritual poverty? I think one of the ways you can test yourself is how much do you need to read your word? 
and you walk, go, go throughout the day without being anywhere, go throughout the week without being in the Word, and that's a, that's a symptom of not being as healthy as you could be. How much do you pray? Um, Martin Luther's famous for this one saying. He says, I'm so busy tomorrow, I have to get up three hours early to pray to get it all done. God used Martin Luther to single-handedly bring the great reformation against the Roman Catholic Church, and he was someone who was spiritually broken. I need to pray for three hours to be effective. I need to pray for spirit, three hours to get everything done. How is your spiritual poverty? Here's the second beatitude that we see. Blessed are those, blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the mourners, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, um, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the, they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, the word mourn that Christ uses here, there are nine different words for mourn in the New Testament. Nine different Greek words for mourn. Christ uses the strongest possible word for mourn. It was something that was used of when your relative died. You know, in those days, they would mourn for weeks, right? They would mourn. They had professional mourners that would weep and wail, right? He used the strongest word. There is a type of mourning that is in the life of someone who is truly born again that is absent from the world. And it's not a mourning occasion. This word in Greek is a continual mourning. There's a continual mourning in the life of someone who has entered the kingdom of heaven that is not in the world. What type of mourning is it? It is mourning when you lose a relative? No, that happens to believers and non-believers alike. Is it mourning when you lose your job? No, that happens to believers and non-believers alike. The specific type of mourning that he's talking about here is a mourning over sin. See, when you became born again, one of the things that God did in the life of true believers is that he changed your relationship to sin. You can't live the way that you used to live anymore. And when you do, it creates a mourning. It creates a pain in the life of someone who is truly born again. But there's a second aspect of not just our own personal sin. It's also the sins of the world. When you look at the Gospels, we never see times where Christ laughed. I do believe Christ laughed. I think sometimes you can see in his hyperboles that he uses and illustrations that he sometimes it's almost like a comedy. We never see him laugh, but we do see times where he mourned. He mourned when he saw Israel. I think it's right after, uh, um, after they said, Hosanna, Hosanna. What, what's the, what day is that called? Palm Sunday. Yeah. Hosanna, Hosanna. And he weeps over Israel. How long? I wish to, to wrap you in my arms. He saw how sinful and how far away they really were. He weeped over them. He also weeped when Lazarus died, right? Even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, right? He saw the effects of sin, and it caused him a mourning. Romans chapter 8 talks about how um, creation mourns, waiting for uh, the sons of God to be revealed. It talks about how the Holy Spirit mourns in us. It says we, um, we mourn. There is a mourning in the life of those who are truly born again. They mourn and see, when they see how far their country is away from God when they see the racism, when they see the abortions, when they see the redefining of marriage, those who are truly born again, there is a mourning when the world parades it through the streets, when the world celebrates sins. The opposite of mourning is laughter, when they laugh and joke and tell their stories in the locker room about their sexual escapades. Those who are part of the kingdom of God mourn, and it marks them as different. Listen to what John said. Again, remember, 1 John is a book of test of salvation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says this. 
No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. This is how we know the children of who, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. John's not saying Christians don't sin. When he says continue, he means this continual lifestyle. It's what we see in Matthew 7, 23. You workers of iniquity, we all sin, but they lived a lifestyle of sin without repentance, without mourning, without fighting their sin, without trying to be holy in their language. There was no proof that God's seed was in them. Depart from me. I never knew you. If your relationship with God has never changed your relationship to sin, then your confession has probably never changed your eternal destiny. If your relationship to sin has never changed, your eternal destiny has probably never changed as well. Here's a great picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read that for you. Ezekiel has a vision about this judgment that Israel's about to go through. Listen to what he says. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a riding kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had a riding kit at his side, and said to him, Go, listen to this, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listen, he said to the others, Follow him throughout the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, maidens, women, and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Now, what's going on in this passage? Now, Ezekiel um, is having a vision. Babylon is about to come and judge Israel. But even though Babylon is going to judge Israel in the physical world, In the spiritual world, there's always spiritual forces happening. There are angels that are part of this judgment. Seven angels, six of them with weapons, one of them with the writing kit. The one with the writing kit goes and marks. Oh, you're mourning about how they're dishonoring God and worshiping idols. Oh, you're you're mourning about the sexual morality that's happening in the city. Oh, you're mourning about the abortion as people are sacrificing their children to Molech. Oh, you're mourning. And he says, go and wipe out everybody else except the ones who had the mark, the mourners. They were the ones who were part of God's kingdom. Listen today, if you're a mourner when you watch the news, when you see how far our nation is away from God, if you're a mourner when you see your friends who call themselves Christians living in ungodly dating relationships or whatsoever, if you're a mourner, then guess what? People may mock you. People may make fun of you because you're different, but you have a mark. You have a mark. And when the judgment comes, you're going to be delivered. Has God changed your relationship to sin? Do you mourn over your own sin? Do you mourn over the sin in your office place, in your your family, in your nation? This is a proof that you're part of the kingdom of heaven. But there's also a promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What type of comfort is Christ talking about? 
There's the comfort of many times as we mourn over our own sin, God sets us free from our ungodly language. He sets us free from some addiction that we have, that when we truly hate our sin, willing to pluck out our eye and cut off our arm, we hate it so much, and all of a sudden we find deliverance. Part of the reason that many people don't get free from sin is they don't hate it enough. They don't hate it enough to be drastic, to do whatever it takes to be holy, plucking out their eye and cutting off their arm. Matthew chapter 4, 5, spiritually speaking about doing whatever it takes to be holy. They don't hurt, they don't hurt enough. And therefore, they never receive the comfort. Sometimes they receive the comfort by seeing the repentance and salvation of their friends or revival in their school as they're praying for their school or revival in their workplace or their family as they mourn and bring it before God. There's a comfort for mourners. Revival in their nation. No doubt Martin Luther and the others who followed him were mourning. and God brought a great reformation. But ultimately, this mourning or this, the reward, this comfort comes when Christ comes. One day, God will make everything in government right. One day, he will reward, uh, bring justice that has been neglected for the poor, for yourself. One day, he's going to deliver me from the pride that I fight against all the time. He's going to deliver me from the lust that I have to fight against. One day, there's a comfort for those who mourn as he gives us a new body, and we no longer have to fight against our sin. We no longer have to wrestle against it. There's a comfort for those who mourn. Are you a mourner? How is your mourning? Or have you become apathetic? Or like the world, you just simply laugh at the TV and laugh at the music and pump in the ungodly music and different things. Have you just so apathetic that you become like the world? It doesn't bother you. It doesn't affect you. You don't even notice it. You become so lukewarm in your spiritual life. How is your mourning? Ephesians chapter 4 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Most Christians don't even notice the Holy Spirit. He's grieved in their, their music and their television and their conversations. There's no sensitivity because they're not healthy as they should be. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Here's the next one. Blessed are, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek here is one of the hardest words to translate in the New Testament. It was used of a horse that was wild. You couldn't ride it. You couldn't get on it. It hadn't been tamed yet. But all of a sudden, when it had been broken, when it had been tamed, you could get on the horse, and you put the strap on the right side of the neck, and it would shoot off to the left. You put the strap on the left side of the neck, it would shoot off to the right. Now it's power under control. There is a self-control that starts to happen, or a spirit control that starts to happen in the life of someone who's been born again. One commentator, William Barclay, translated it this way. He translated the whole, the whole Bible, and this is how he translated it. He says, blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Blessed is the one who's always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. What does he mean by that? Again, all of these can be seen in Christ, and we see this in the life of Christ. In John chapter 2, we see a time where Christ is kind of unchristlike, some might say, right? He goes to the temple. They're trading and uh, cheating the people. And what Christ comes and, and does, he flips over the tables, right? kind of like some WWE-type action. He flips over the tables. He pulls out a whip and says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. When it was meant to be a place of prayer, house of prayer for all nations. He's angry over injustice. He's angry because God is being dishonored. 
He's angry because people are being cheated. When sin came into the garden, instead of being angry Godward, in other words, we became totally self-focused. The only time most of us are angry is when it affects us, when it affects our benefit, our blessing, right? Instead of being angry over the others being mistreated or God being dishonored. The way, when he says uh, always never angry at the wrong time, we also see this in Christ. When Christ went to the cross, he was described as a lamb to the, to the slaughter. Um, we have a, a mission school that we run at, at Handong in Korea, and we send uh, our students in the summer to Mongolia. We send them to uh, Indonesia. We send them to Japan and Philippines, different places. When they go to Mongolia, oftentimes they'll get a chance to eat horse, um, but also they'll oftentimes kill lambs for them. And what they'll do when they kill the lamb is they'll just take the lamb into their arms that they've been loving and raising, and then they'll just slit his neck. He doesn't run, doesn't fight, doesn't scream like a lamb to the slaughter, right? When they accuse Christ, they said, do you have nothing to say? Yeah, when he was on the cross and people were mocking him and spitting on him, he says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see his anger, the power, he said, I could have called thousands of angels if I wanted to. His power was under control. When it came to God being dishonored, when it came to others being mistreated, he was like a lion. When it came to himself, he was like a lamb. Sadly, most of us are like lions when we're offended and like lambs when everybody else is, when everybody else is hurt, when people are being mistreated. We're like lambs then, but when it comes to us, then we're like lions. It's the opposite. That's what meekness is. Now, again, none of us perfectly model this, right? It's something that's seen in Christ, but it's something that should be growing in the life of true believers. Matthew chapter 5, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you and abuse you. If they want to take your shirt, give them your jacket as well. If they make you go one mile, the Romans who had mistreated them, go two miles. When it came to the person themselves, they were like lambs. When it came to others, they were like lions. Are you like a lion when you're offended? Or are you like a lion when others are offended, right? How are you growing in this meekness? He gives the promise of this. For they will inherit the earth. One day, those who fight for their rights now, fight for their kingdom now, one day it'll be taken away from them and given to the meek, the gentle. Those who want their pie now, lose it. And those who give it up, because their kingdom is not of this world, shall one day receive it. Now, there's a lot more that we could go into that about when to fight for your rights. These are just snapshots. Most people preach one beatitude, so we're not going fully as deep as we could go into this. Um, Here's the last one. I'm glad we get to it. We're almost done. Say to your neighbor, we're almost done. Amen. Usually my congregation will be happy, but I'm doing okay, actually, today. I'm doing okay. It, It gets bad. Here's the last one. I'm glad we get to it. Because this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Everybody's got their favorite verse. This is my favorite verse. Because it's a very special promise. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied, depending on the translation that you read. Um, There is a specific type of hunger in the life of those who are truly born again that is absent in the life of non-believers. And it's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me add this in here. Now, after, after church, most of us are going to go get something to eat. Maybe you're going to go to Luby's. You're going to go find some, some food. And then you're going to take your Sunday nap, right? That's typically how it works. Most of us don't know anything about really being hungry. 
in this ancient world, hunger and thirst was a common companion. There were large deserts, and many times they would have to travel for days, and water would run out, and they would be thirsty, really thirsty. They couldn't just go into the refrigerator and get a drink of water. There would be no place for water, and they may have to go a day or two without water. So this was a, the, the, the language Christ is using here is a desperate type of hunger and thirst, meaning a beautiful sunset will do nothing for you. Winning the lottery will do nothing for you. Because if you don't have food and drink, you will die. So that's the type of hunger Christ is dealing with here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in. Look, this is something very special. Even though I believe the book of Ephesians is primarily written to a church, that each church, there's, God has given uh, Northeast community a special mission, and your mission may not be exactly the same as someone else. Special graces he's given this church. I think we should look at these, uh, these, these uh, words to churches in a sense of a corporate sense, but it's also individual, I believe, as well. And one of the cool things about walking in Christ, there are things that God is developing in my heart that I believe that he wants me to do. And it's specific to me, and it's unique to you. Specific things that he made you for. Specific things, the trials that you went through, the difficulties, and the people that you're going to minister to and care for that are unique to you. And these things will start to come out in your life as you begin to walk with them. But there are also many general things. These, what types of hunger are in the life of those who are truly born again, but many times aren't in unbelievers? Here's the first one. If you're born again, you will hunger for God's word. Somebody else say amen. You will hunger for God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when Christ is being tempted in the wilderness, he says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's basically a love letter all about the word. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. Teach me your statutes. How can a man keep his way pure? Because you know David struggled with purity. By living according to your word, right? A whole letter that's about the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, crave spiritual milk. It says like infants, crave spiritual milk that you, might, that you may grow up into your salvation. He doesn't tell you to read the Bible. He tells you to hunger. Because if you hunger, you will read the Bible. If you hunger, you will study it. And the problem with many of us is that we don't hunger. It's amazing when you see someone who first accepts Christ, one of the first things you'll notice that's different about them is they want to read the Bible now. Right? They're knocking out the New Testament many times in just a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, at some point they stop being as hungry for the Word of God later on. But when they first, when that new birth happens, they're like a baby. And they're reading it, they're studying it, and that's a proof that there is true salvation there. That they hunger, they crave like a baby. Have you ever hungered for the word of God like a baby? It's natural, totally natural. How come some of us lose our hunger, our craving for the word of God? Now, um, I'm sure many of you heard this as well when you were younger. My mom used to tell me this. We tell this to my daughter who's six years old. We say, nope, you can't have sweets before dinner. Why? Because it will ruin your appetite. Why do many people that probably are truly born again seem to no longer hunger for the word of God? Why? Because they've been feasting on the things of the world. 
1 John chapter 2 says, do not love the world, but the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. There's a competing principle in the things of the world meant to satisfy people without God. And for many of us, we get so enwrapped in the things of the world that we start to lose a hunger for the things of God. Um, when my daughter was a baby, let's say hypothetically, um, if my daughter had not, was not eating throughout the day, we'd be a little worried because hunger is a natural um, marker for health. Are you, that's why you go to the doctor and say, are, have you been eating? All right. Ask your neighbor right now, have you been eating? Are you, are you, have you been eating? Are you, are you healthy? Right? The doctor's going to ask you, have you been eating? If my daughter, if my daughter, when she was a baby, wasn't eating, we'd be worried because that's a symptom of possibly being sick. And so if it went for over a day and she hadn't ate, we'd go straight to the hospital. And what would the doctor do? He'd stick an IV in the baby. And he would force feed her. Why? Because if she doesn't eat, she won't live. For many of you, if you've lost your hunger for the, thing, for the word of God, sometimes the wisest thing you can do is begin to force feed yourself. Read it in the morning and reading it at noon, just like Daniel, as he sought the Lord in the morning and at lunch, and he sought him at, at the late, uh, later in the day. Begin to force feed yourself so that you can develop your hunger. When I, my daughter's sick, I say, I know you're not hungry, but you need to eat so you can fight off sickness, right? And so even though you may not feel like it, reading the Bible or doing et cetera, you need to force feed yourself to get rid of the sickness that's keeping you away from the things of God. Are you still hungry? Have you ever been hungry for the word of God? Here's a, a second type of hunger that is unique to the children of God. We hunger for God's will. We hunger for God's will. John chapter 4, you remember the story? Christ is speaking to the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman, he's leading her to Christ. There's about to be a revival that's going to happen amongst the Samaritans. The disciples come, and they're hungry for regular food. And they say, hey, let's go get something to eat, Jesus. And I can kind of just picture this. Jesus kind of turns around and looks at them and says, I have food you know nothing about. John 4.34, I believe it is. My food is to do the will of the Father. That's hard. You know what makes it hard? It's because the disciples did do God's will. They went and preached in villages. They cast out demons. But at that moment, they were so consumed with temporary things like food. He says, lift up your eyes. The harvest is coming. No doubt for myself as well, even though I serve in ministry, it's my job to do ministry. Many times, Christ must look at me and discuss it well. and says, I have food you know nothing about because you're so consumed with just temporary things. You're eating and you're drinking and retirement and all these other things. You're so consumed with all these other things that you're missing the harvest. You're missing what I'm passionate about. My food is to do the will of God. When a person is healthy, they desire the will of God. That includes seeing, seeing soul saved. It's very, very interesting. When someone first accepts Christ, they're like the best evangelists. Get the young believer because they're telling their mama about Jesus. They're telling the person on the bus about Jesus. They're telling the Uber Bible about Jesus. Everywhere they go, they're talking about Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, at some point, we get a little mature and dignified, and we stop talking about Jesus. Right? Isn't that true? But when they're first born again, that hunger's there, and they're telling everybody. And I, and I, I preach to you as I'm preaching to myself. I preach to you as I'm preaching to myself. Here's a third aspect that we hunger for. Believers hunger for more of God. Psalm 63 verse 1 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Lord, I want to know you. That was David's cry of, of his heart. One thing I desire, David said, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and see his glory forever. That was his one thing. He hungered for God. Sadly, what often happens in the lives of believers, sometimes in ministry we can get so consumed with souls or other things that we miss the main thing, sitting at the feet of our Lord, being with him, hearing his voice, knowing him more intimately, one-on-one. Moses cried out and said, God said about Moses, he was the humblest man on the earth, and that with the other prophets, he spoke to them through dreams, but with Moses, he spoke to him face to face, and yet Moses was not satisfied. He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. He hungered to know God more. Are you still hungry to know him? Because he wants to know you. He died for you. He was chasing after you your whole life, and he's chasing after you even right now. He wants you to know him first of all, and then he wants you to walk in the calling after. But he wants you to know him, to abide in him, to make your home in him, to live with him at all times. And from that abiding, John 15, shall much fruit come from. This is why this verse is my favorite verse in the Bible. Listen again to the reward. All of these, are, all of these have promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here's the first aspect of this promise. Whatever you've received from God is proportional to your hunger. That means if you can look at your life, the amount of the word of God that you know is proportional to your hunger. The amount of souls that you lead to Christ is proportional to your hunger. The amount of ministry helping others, helping women, let the older women teach the younger women, is proportional to your hunger. And let me tell you, when we realize that, it's a sad commentary. I've seen this throughout my life as a young kid. I was always in strong evangelical churches that preached the gospel, and I get really convicted. I need to share the gospel, and I start praying to share the gospel. And sure enough, as I prayed, God would open up a door to share the gospel and share the gospel again. And then I would lose the desire for it, and then I wouldn't be sharing the gospel at all. And then I get convicted at a retreat or something like that. Then I then God, I pray to share the gospel, and God would open up the door to share the gospel. I've seen it throughout my life, throughout my life. When I was hungry, God used me, and when I wasn't, I wasn't being used. I'm sure you can see the same. It's a promise. We're all taking part of this. At this moment, your hunger is reciprocal to what you receive in return. There's a story about a, a revivalist called Praying High. And Praying High wasn't like a regular revivalist. A regular revivalist, when I was young, we'd have revivals, and we'd bring in somebody who would stomp and spit and yell, right, and get you all pumped up for Jesus. He wasn't that type of revivalist. He was a praying revivalist. And so there was a revival happening. They brought Praying High in. And the first night, after the sermon, there was an altar call, and no one came forward. And the story was that Praying Hyde went into his room, and someone had walked by his room, and they could hear these long, these, these loud yells and screams. And Praying Hyde said, give me souls or give me death. Give me souls or give me death. The story is the next night at the revival, there's the altar call, and just a few people came forward. And the next night... A lot more people came forward. The next night, a lot more people came forward. And eventually, they had to lengthen out the revival past a week because all these people from the villages started to come in. See, praying high was a picture of someone who was hungry. And let me tell you, the people that God has used the greatest in the kingdom of God, they weren't the most eloquent. They weren't necessarily the most educated. Moody didn't have a college education. But what they were was the most hungry. 
And so as you look at your spiritual health, hunger physically is a, is a picture of your health. It's also spiritually a picture of your health. How is your hunger? I'll be honest. One of the things I've been wrestling with since I've been here, we've been on sabbatical from mid-September. We leave on Tuesday. And one of the things I've been wrestling with is I'm not that hungry. I like to think, you know, sabbatical, you they let you go on sabbatical so you can get refreshed and revived and come back on fire. Look, I am not refreshed. <laughs> I am not on fire. But I'm certainly weaker. And I hope that's God's grace. And I'm praying over my hunger. I'm praying, God, I want to be used. Give me a heart to be used. Lord, I want souls, even though I don't want souls like I should. I'm praying over my hunger. One of the things you must do if you lack hunger is, first of all, recognize it and confess it. Lord, I don't desire for my friends to know Christ like I used to. I don't desire for my family to know the Lord. I don't desire to help other men walking their calling or other women. Lord, I've become totally self-centered, so apathetic to the things of God. Lord, forgive me and help me. It's one of the ways that we develop a hunger for the things of God. Here's the second aspect of this promise. Some versions, I'm not sure which one the NIV does, it says, blessed are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. Some versions say they shall be satisfied. See, there's an emotional component to the word satisfaction. When I was a uh, sophomore in college, I played basketball at St. Ed's for, for uh, two years. When I was a sophomore in college, I started struggling with depression, um, where at times I didn't even want to live. And one of the things I did in that season, I think it was part of my preparation for ministry, was living in the word. And God gave me grace to persevere, but it still can come back on me now if I'm not being faithful and abiding where joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's still something I have to battle against today. But one of the things I've noticed in my own spiritual life, and it corresponds to this word, that many times I don't have the joy I should have when I'm not hungering for the things I should be hungering for. When I'm when I'm looking at Facebook and I'm seeing what my friends are doing and how God's blessing them, all of a sudden I start to be kind of self-centered and, and woe is me, right? You know, you know, these things that start to, to bring my heart down because I'm not being satisfied with righteousness. We were all made in the image of God. You know what that means? The only thing that will satisfy you is the righteousness of the Father, right? If you take a fish right now and you throw it out on the floor, is that fish going to be happy? No, because he was made for the ocean. In the same way, you being made in the image of God, you were made for righteousness. And where you'll find the most joy in your life, the most satisfaction in your life, is when you're doing the things that God is passionate about. Serving others, blessing others, praying for others, getting involved in your church, your body that God has made you a part of, that you're not going to be healthy if you're not a part of, if you're not intertwined with the body. When you're not doing the things of God, you're going to find that you lack satisfaction and you lack the joy that you were meant to have. And so for me, I have to always take, take account of myself as I'm finding myself feeling a little low. What am, I really, what am I really passionate about right now? Am I really hungering and thirsting? Because God promises not only will he fill it, he'll give me the satisfaction that I'm lacking. I'm lacking. In conclusion, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself. See if you're really in the faith, if Christ Jesus is in you. Are these characteristics in your life, are you the spiritually bankrupt? Do you recognize that you need God for salvation, that you can't be saved by your works, only by the blood of the Lamb? Do you recognize that you need him for everything? Are you depending on him daily, seeking his face? Are you the spiritually bankrupt? Are you the mourner? Have you start, are you 
mourning over your sin? Are you mourning over this world, the sins of this world? Are you apathetic or are you laughing like the rest of the world, pumping in the junk music and pumping in the junk TV? Are you, you've just become just like everybody else, dull, a dull instrument in the house of God. Are you apathetic um, towards sin? Are you a mourner? Only the mourners receive the comfort of God. They're set free from their own sins. God uses them to set others free. God uses them to pray and weep and mourn, and there's revival in their church, there's revival in their nation. Only those who have the pain of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who mourns with inside of us. Are you still a mourner? Are you the meek? Is this, are you spirit-controlled or self-controlled? Are you a lion when, you're, when you're, someone upsets you, or are you a lamb? Are you a lion with others? God has... Anger is not a sin. Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 24, I can't remember exactly, but Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let yourself go to sleep while you're still angry. Meaning, be angry, it's a command. Anger, there's a righteous anger that's in God. He's a wrathful God. The problem is when sin came in the world, it perverted our wrath. We became totally self-consumed instead of God-consumed, instead of others-consumed. That anger is meant to empower you serve and bless others, to seek for righteousness and justice. And it's a sin when we don't have it. And many of us don't. We just have a selfish anger, which is the wrong anger. Are you the meek who will inherit the earth, receive his blessings? Finally, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I want to take a second. I believe that when God speaks, when he speaks to his word, the most appropriate thing we can do is pray and respond. So what I want you to do right now, if you would take a second individually and confess your sins before God, if you're not hungry for the word of God like you used to be. Maybe some people in here right now, maybe you realize that you might be someone who's never been born again. That these characteristics aren't at all in your life. You have never really hungered for his word. You don't really mourn over sin. You kind of look just like everybody else in your language and your activities and your dating relationships. Scripture says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He died for you. He rose from the dead. He bore the wrath of God for you, and he wants to save you, but he's got to be your Lord. It's not just recognizing he's Lord. He's got to be your Lord. Today you can make a confession. So right now, take a second and respond to the Lord. Take a couple of minutes just to pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for the health of this church. And I'm going to ask whoever's going to lead the Lord's Supper to come up and lead us in a second. So take a second and respond. Thank you for listening. If you would like to know more about us, please visit us at anycommunity.church.